Welcome to the Optimistic Curmudgeon, where the best ideas win. I'm your host, Josh Herring. Today, my guest is Dr. Cornelis Johannes Schilt, lecturer and researcher in the Center for Logic and Philosophy of Science at the Free University in Brussels. He is the author of Isaac Newton and the Study of Chronology, Prophecy, History, and Method from Amsterdam University Press. I had the privilege of meeting Dr. Schilt at the Edmund Burke Foundation's National Conservatism Conference in Miami, and I'm delighted to carry on that conversation today. Dr. Schilt, welcome to the Optimistic Curmudgeon. Thank you very much, Josh. It's, it's a pleasure to be here. Well, I, I am very excited to uh, be able to have a transcontinental conversation. It, it's somehow just really exciting to think about the fact that we can uh, enact our own little republic of letters here across the pond and, uh, and, and uh, talk about science today. Uh, well, Dr. Schilt, um, I, I wanted to start with asking you about a, a note on your, your, uh, your card. Uh, your, your card lists your job as a historian of knowledge. Uh, what does that mean, and why should we pay attention to the historical context of knowledge? What is a historian of knowledge? Well, what does it mean that we know things, and how do we know what we know? Um, people throughout history have always been wondering, how can we know things? How can we know things about ourselves? How can we know things about the universe? What does it mean to have something like science, which literally means knowledge, sciency? Um, how is knowledge about God different from knowledge about nature? Um, and in order to understand how we arrived at where we are now, all the knowledge that we have now is quite helpful to, to, to see the trajectory of how people have been struggling with similar questions. So my, my field incorporates the history of science, the history of scholarship, the history of religion, the history of, of, of working with artifacts, um, basically all human endeavors where we try to understand and make sense of the world in and around us. I want to kind of press into that just a little bit. Those, those seem like three different ways that people pursue knowledge. Uh, science is kind of, at least I think of science as being particularly focused on material causality and maybe at the grandest and the most minute levels. Philosophy is sort of an intellectual exploration that's uh, less interested in proof and more interested in the strength of arguments, it seems. And religion depends primarily on a, a prior assumption that there is some spiritual reality that has somehow spoken or revealed itself to those of us here on the material plane. Um, those seem like three separate things, and yet you just told us they really belong together. Help me see the connection between those three. Like, why do you see those as all really having a lot of overlap? This is exactly where, where history of the field comes into being, because that tripartite division that you just made is, is really something very modern. If you'd ask someone in the 17th century about these things, they would say that they're all intrinsically connected. It's exactly in the 17th century that people began to distinguish between these fields, if you like. But to give you an idea, people like Copernicus, Kepler, Galileo, uh, Francis Bacon, uh, Isaac Newton, all the greats in history of science, wouldn't have considered themselves scientists. They would have considered themselves natural philosophers. That was the term in use, and it encompassed quite a bit more than what we would now call science. There was a very strong religious dimension by definition, 
Um, and a term like cosmology, for instance, which we now use, you know, to 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 describe the study of 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 the skies, of the heavens, if you like, that incorporate the relation between God, mankind, and the universe in its totality. So words have also changed, and terms have changed throughout the centuries, um, and that division, if you like, into science, philosophy, and and religion. Um, you could question how useful that actually is and how true that actually is. I suppose it depends on your worldview. And I'm sure that's true. I know uh, I taught a high school uh, high school philosophy class for three years, and I, uh, there is a very thin line between Plato's theory of forms and uh, sort of a, a doctrine of God. Uh, they're, they are distinct. I do. I did finish that class. Think, okay, those are different things, mm -hmm. but they are a lot closer than than I thought they than I used to think of them as. And I really, uh, it seems like philosophy and theology really are are sisters more than they are uh, distant strangers, uh, in a way. Um, Use the phrase natural philosophy. Uh, before we move back on to our uh, schedule question, I did want to uh, just ask you about one other figure from that time period. Uh, this is going way back when I was a, an undergraduate history major. My professor handed me a biography of uh, John D, and he seems to fit everything you're describing. As I, uh, he was the court astrologer to Elizabeth I for a time, uh, but like many people in her court, he fell out of favor. So he started traveling across Europe, and uh, his passion was uncover. It was he had two passions. He wanted to uncover uh, the philosopher's stone, and he did lots of experiments. Uh, claiming that he would find the Philosopher's Stone, uh, but he also really wanted to discover the angelic language that was spoken in the Garden of Eden. So his journals are some of the most interesting things that are filled with cryptic nonsense that uh, he, I at least would say it's cryptic nonsense. He said that this was, he would trapped a demon in a circle and made it talk to him and he wrote down what it said. Uh, so and he was one of the folks I remember, like he he used alchemy and chemistry and magic and science almost interchangeably in a way that no one today would use those terms in the same way. But he thought they were really identical. What what are your thoughts on on John D or that whole era? Kind of just what what are your thoughts in response to that story? John D is a fascinating figure because he's he's so he's slightly before what we would now call the scientific revolution, which if you like doesn't really start with Copernicus, but more with, with Galileo and, and Kepler in the early 17th century. Um, when John Dee talked about magic, it's not the same as, you know, Harry Potter style waving your wand. Magic was the manipulation of nature. And that again sounds very scientific, if you like to use the modern word science. Just like alchemy, you could see it as a form of, of early chemistry. They even used a term in those days called chemistry, which is chemistry with a Y instead of an E, to 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 describe what we would now call a sort of well, both both true chemistry, and a bit of the 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 ideas that there is a spiritual dimension there, that indeed there is this thing called the transmutation of metals, which was what the philosopher stone was supposed to do. It could create anything uh, from, or it could create it could turn any base metal into gold. Um, and and it, it has been one of the two the two sort of hallmarks of alchemy ever since the the 14th century when when the field emerges one of them the other one being the the elixir of life mm. so you know having 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 um, 
riches and eternal life um i suppose uh, not much has changed over you know seven <laughs> centuries so. i'm sure that's true those are still those have been the most potent temptations for humanity since the dawn of time and I, i'm yes. sure that won't change well, let's do talk a little bit about Sir Isaac Newton. I know that that's mm. been a major focus of your academic work. I'm going to mention the title of your book one more time. That uh, is uh, Isaac Newton and the Study of Chronology, Prophecy, History, and Method. Um, how would you describe Sir Isaac's contributions to modern science? Uh, foundational. No, there would not be modern science without Isaac Newton, to put it that way. Um, he is the first one to rigorously apply mathematics to, to nature. And instead of saying, I'm going to give you a theory that provides, that describes everything, that, that gives an explanation for everything, he'd say, I can't do that, but I can give you a method that will get you very close. And it's based upon um, empirical measurements and verification thereof and mathematical theories. So induction and deduction, if you like, those terms are not Newton's, but he's the one who rigorously applies those. And through the, this sort of method, he, he also comes up with theories about gravity that we still have, mathematical theories about gravity. So you have to think in the early 17th century, so, so the 17th century can be characterized by this whole idea. So that, 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 that natural philosophy talks about everything it talks about causes all the way from god all until until the simple causes that we see and a natural philosopher like kepler like galileo like descartes ideally wanted to give a full theory that encompassed all these these, these notions and, and the last one to do so is this frenchman called rene descartes and he comes up with a theory that that that, that literally says it, that it explains everything but as newton would say well a theory that explains everything explains nothing because you have nothing to verify the theory with because that's already incorporated in the theory then how do you know that the theory has any truth value you don't so newton in a sense he wants to have a theory that encompasses both the universe god and mankind but he's also very rigorously uh, involved in the development of a method that gives you accurate knowledge with Newton, we have the beginnings of the scientific method, as we know it now. Um, and later on, I will tell you that there is no such thing as the scientific method. But let's let's put, let's call it scientific methodology, and that can be replicated, and that is um, mathematically rigorous. Well, let's 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 go there for a moment, because uh, I mean, I, I teach at a school where uh, we have grades six through 12 have different science classes. They go through various iterations of kind of a geology, biology, chemistry, and physics at different middle school and high school levels. And every one of those classes begins with a standard that is always called the scientific method. And mm -hmm. uh, it always depends on who's teaching the class, of course, but ideally every year we have our students kind of begin with what we teach them is this kind of standard five or six fold scientific method that involves identify a problem, develop a hypothesis, develop a testable mechanism, uh, actually experiment and then evaluate your results and then publish your results, I think is the, is the standard last key. So tell us more about when you say there is no scientific method, I really want to know more because that's that's certainly something that we tell people that there mm -hmm. is. So why, why do you say there is no scientific method? 
maybe you could argue that the method that you've just described is an ideal, an ideal that good science should adhere to. And then in practice, no one actually does science that way. Mm. It's a bit like the biblical law, the Ten Commandments being read out and then everyone thinking, oops, oops. <laughs> what, 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 what was your score today, this week? Well, wasn't so good, you know, but we should all strive to it. So in general, generally speaking, scientists try to follow that method, but it's never as rigorously applied as, as, as the letter of the law, if you like, mm. because science doesn't happen in a vacuum. Science does not happen on its own. Um, if, if, for one, there is the person of the scientist with, with its own motives, um, which could be, you know, the next career step, or I want to be famous, so I fake it, or there is an agenda that I want to pursue for all sorts of reasons or that I'm forced to pursue. You see, that th there's nothing neutral about science. Even though many scientists think that they that what they do is very neutral and uh, they are actually quite um what's the word i'm looking for integer i mean they 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 are not uh crooks you know that is i i think that's fascinating because that's reminding me of a uh, class i took where i had to read um watson and crick's book the double helix about the mm. discovery of the dna yes. model and it was I, I was surprised. I'm a humanities guy through and through. I was not happy about taking a pseudoscience course. We weren't doing science. We were reading about science, which I also learned are two very different things uh, mm -hmm. in that class. But we had to read this book. And one of the things that struck my uh, fancy in that book was that they are just, uh, I think it's Watson in particular, these guys are just bumbling around in labs and they are paying very close attention to the prestige of their opponents. And they're really, really concerned about being the first ones to publish. And then they're really, at one point, they are mildly depressed that someone else published, but then they're really excited because they spot the mistake in his research. Yes. And now they're like, oh, there's still a chance. We can still get there. And it's not, it's not this idyllic, rush to truth it's much more exactly what you're just saying it's the career move it's the prestige it's the acclaim it's much more human uh, than, than i at least was thinking of the stereotypical scientist in his lab who is uh just pursuing knowledge and truth for their own sake and no, that's not what these guys are they're and they're, there's all the the finances of that story mm. too and because they each got funding for a certain amount of time and had to have some level of results in order to get additional funding in the future which created all these incentives. It it was not this unmixed, unadulterated, scientific story that I was kind of expecting. Or, alternatively, you should argue that science, as we usually see it, is way too narrow. This is also science. Now you have to realize that the double helix was 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 written. Um, I think this is their story. This is also the way they 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 want to to tell the world about it. So it's it's biased by definition, and at the same time, it gives you this insight. Now, tell me where in the double helix did you see um, the, the two, or if you like, three main protagonists, including Ro Rosamund Franklin, follow anything remotely related to that scientific method that you just described? Uh, it's, not, really it's not there. It's it's not there. It doesn't. It, the word scientific method isn't even included in the book. Mm. So this is a nice case study. 
about how science works in real life. Any aspiring, any budding scientist, you know, you've done your master's degree, you want to obtain, you, you want you want, you, you want to move on, you want to have a career. That means that you need to find funding, a funded lab space, you know. So you have to go with the agenda of the lab, which means you have to work on a project that's often not your own project, and you have to do it in a certain way. That's not the way you might want to do it. But if you want to go an independent course right away, you won't you won't succeed because you, there's a power dynamic here. I hate using that word, but you know, because I'm not a commie, but you know, it is it is true. There are in every in every in every line of profession, this 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 is the case. So you have to have you have to reach a certain academic maturity first, which often means getting a PhD, getting a lot of publications out, because that's how your success is being measured. That gives you the next postdoctoral position that gives you the next postdoctoral position you in, in the meantime you travel all over the world so forget about family life or friendships or that sort of stuff it's all very shallow if it's there or you have to limit yourself uh, incredibly and maybe give up on a career straight away uh, or, or a long career if you like in academia so how far are you willing to go and then you see someone doing something that's unethical but it's also your, your postdoc supervisor so are you ratting him uh, or you know are you are you willing to play along because you can see that it, it, it will it will promote your career then someone offers you a couple of million to do research on something that looks a bit shady but it is a couple of million and it's a grant that you can put on your cv and all of these things happen and and you know that's 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 the scientist's life there's something I would everything you're describing makes perfect sense. It's taking me back to uh, days studying history and realizing there, there's a reason most historians are very, very sarcastic people. Uh, they, they, there's historical study tends, I think, to produce a little bit of cynicism because the more you dig into the complexity of people, the more you realize that odds are really good that nobody is as good in reality as they make themselves look on, in print. And the, the historian's task is to dig into that complexity. And somehow science manages to present itself with this uh, pristine image. And I don't know if those are actual scientists who contribute to that or if it's something that people just imagine. Um, but I wonder if we could use that mm -hmm. to kind of bridge between the distinction between there's science on the one hand, that maybe if we take everything we've been describing, this messy, convoluted mix of ideas, power dynamics, tradition, innovation, and somehow producing some new insight into some long-traveled path of knowledge. But then there's scientism on the other hand, mm. where there's, this, there's somehow this, this idyllic mentality of like, oh, the science has said, the science has concluded, the science is clear. And... So how, how, how should we distinguish between those two? What, what would you add to kind of clarify those terms? What, what are your thoughts on those, those two terms? Well, before we go into scientism full-blown, I think there is a third avenue or a third field that, that is very important here, and it's called science communication. Because in between the lab and you sitting behind your screen or reading your journal or your newspaper, there is someone who reports on science, and they are science journalists or, or science editors or science writers. They can be from independent critical media, uh, of which less and less exist, of course. They can be they they can be from 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 industry themselves or from the labs themselves. Um, some really want to make something that's very difficult, 
simple to understand so we can all grasp it and others just want to promote a particular idea of what science is and those people are not to be underestimated mm. um, the thing is that these days large news corporations want to pay less and less for educated science journalists, so science journalists who come from a field of science, who understand the complexities of science, and then also are able to write about this in such a way that it forms a very interesting and still factual correct story. So mm -hmm. a lot of a lot of science communication is dumbing down on the complexities of what science is. And it tries to play into an existing narrative, the simple narrative. The scientists are robots that follow the scientific method and thereby all their results are, are sort of objective truths and that sort of thing. Um, so that's one, that, that's one thing that I wanted to inject into this conversation. Mm -hmm. Now, scientism is something that is actually quite difficult to define. There are at least three different definitions of scientism. But I think the one that you're hinting at is the idea that science will, can teach us everything and is the only and true method to ultimate knowledge. Mm -hmm. um, that is the one that's been promoted by Richard Dawkins, for example or by Steven Weinberg, or by various other uh, scientists, um, some with very, very, very rich careers, who believe that their science is somehow better than everything else. They re religiously believe that. And that's because to them, science has become a religion. Mm. Because there's nothing in science itself that warrants any of these statements about science itself. Science is a model with which we look at the world and try to make sense of it and try to come up with new ideas, new facts, new data, new discoveries. But any decent scientist will tell you that it cannot be complete by definition. It's exactly what Newton already did. It's exactly what Einstein said. It's exactly what many other scientists will tell you. If, if you ask an atheist scientist about the existence of God, the only truly scientific answer would be we don't know or i don't know and i cannot know because my method will not allow me to say something about it therefore with regards to god i am agnostic that's the only properly scientific response of course many will say i, I don't believe in god and, and there can't be a god and th th this already borders on scientism because now they apply their method to some to a field to which their method isn't isn't suitable now, there's a lot more to be said about this because history of science is often used by, by the adherents of scientism to, to show that theirs is a success story that will eventually explain everything. It's inevitable. In the olden days, God was, was invented to cover all the gaps in our knowledge. It's literally called the God of the gaps. And more and more of these gaps have been filled in by science. And so in the future, whatever gaps we still have will be filled in by science. Mm. That's sort of an extra, an extra an sort of an extrapolation of, 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 of their method. Again, there, there's no 
there's something lacking from this from this 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 line of reasoning namely proper evidence which is unhelpful when you claim that science is your religion if you don't have the evidence mm -hmm. that goes with that religion you know so i'm very skeptical whenever i hear someone use this mode of reasoning mm -hmm. and i'm thinking that's all good for you um but it doesn't work if you follow your own rules hmm. i'll go back to something you said a moment ago about science is a particular model for trying to understand the universe or particularly whatever it is the scientific the science uh, scientist is studying and if it's a model it makes sense that that model is useful for a particular purpose and that that's not to denigrate the scientific model for what it is but it is to appreciate it for what it is and recognize that that's not the totality of what exists is that is that an accurate statement that's very accurate and i'm very glad that you also point at, at the positives if you like because just the fact that we can have this this transgalactic conversation is because of science the fact that you and i are healthy and thriving and have a life expectancy of what's it 79 years old uh on average is because oh. of modern science um and and many 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 more of these these things because there is also a group of people who would easily discard the fact oh science you know it's just a bunch of theories it's just one particular model no it has been extremely successful mm -hmm. and maybe that's exactly what then leads to this idea that science will eventually explain everything a sort of very cocky optimism uh, which maybe to bring in a uh, philosophical construct uh, recalls Aristotle's doctrine of the mean that the, uh, the, the, the right response is almost always a moderate response, whether that's an action or in thought. And there is some sort of flaw that lies in deficiency and some sort of flaw that lies in excess. So mm -hmm. a, a complete skepticism about science is really going to be a, that deficient area. And an overconfidence in science to tell us more than it's capable of is going to be that excessive flaw. But a right appreciation of science, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, it has given us the ability to overcome a lot of conditions of in, in reality. I mean, we can, uh, we can transcend distance in a way that our ancestors could not. We can overcome diseases through a much more accurate understanding of chemistry and biology. Uh, we can put we can understand ourselves to some extent to a great deal more uh, that each of those gains that science seems to offer. It, it seems like there's a um, there's a tantalizing thought that like, oh, well, if we've discovered this, rather, there, there's a temptation to then say, well, what have we not discovered rather mm -hmm. than being content with what is discovered and really mapping that out uh, there? There. It, it seems to me that there's something really interesting about the growth of science as a model and it's spread throughout different disciplines and different industries that also pairs with an intellectual progressivism, not just its political application, but just the intellectual belief in progress, that human growth is infinite and techno technological progress is infinite. Well, therefore, scientific knowledge must also be infinite. Which also yeah. seems to minimize the importance of a particular discovery, because that particular discovery is only ever one stepping stone to the infinite. That's quite well, beautiful, beautifully phrased, actually. Yeah. But you use the word progress, mm. and um, 
I always find it very interesting that in the late 19th century, this is the historian of science uh, speaking again. In the late 19th century, there was this idea that we, we that that we, we we knew everything, and 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 there was an ultimate belief that that everything progressed toward towards perfection, including science and society and 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 human understanding. And now we had a theory of evolution that even was a scientific narrative of how we how we we came to be. Um, and then what you see in the West, uh, which 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 uh, the enlightened West, of course, had 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 uh, had removed Christianity from its from its from its worldview, but there is a longing, there is a there is there is there is a void apparently, and suddenly you see an interest pop up in 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 Buddhism and Hinduism and other Asian religions and 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 uh, and African religions even um, apparently there's something missing, something is lacking. Mm -hmm. And so the word progress, um, I, I, I always want to be a bit, bit careful uh, about that because haven't we traded uh, something, you know, as in, as in a, a devil's bargain a la Faust, we sold our soul for eternal life. I mean, look at people these days. We, I just talked about our average life expectancy. Um, we, we seem to do everything to prolong our lives. Even when we are 84 years old and cancer is being, being diagnosed, we are willing to undergo the most horrendous chemotherapy to prolong that life with maybe another six months. Um, is it worth it? It's incredibly expensive, uh, but also... Um, why this? Why this? This? This need to prolong this life to its ultimate? You know, mm -hmm. um, there is something to be said about living a fulfilled life and living a life full of quality, which need not necessarily be very long, if you like. So the spiritual dimension is is mm -hmm. is often neglected, of course, by science. Mm -hmm. Um, but as human beings, apparently we are both matter and spirit. And both of those, both of those matter. And I'm, I'm thinking the, uh, as you were describing that, and, uh, at least there's a thought I've been toying with for several months and I, I'm still working out. So there are probably holes in, in this logic, but uh, there's a line in uh, C.S. Lewis's That Hideous Strength where he talks about the, uh, the creatures who live on the dark side of the moon. That's his uh, the closing novel of the Ransom trilogy. It's his uh, Lewis's best ex ex uh, exploration of science fiction. Uh, but he uh, he talks about the creatures on the dark side of the moon having made a dark bargain where uh, they traded away their children and they they mm -hmm. lose the ability to reproduce and they gain a lot of material wealth for that. And it's it's sort of a throwaway line that I wish Lewis had expanded on. I would love to like get a dystopian novel set in that that society. Uh, but it seems to me that there is something to that idea. Uh, I think there's that too, if I were going to, if I was going to look at that idea of progress in a, uh, I, I, I think of my work in teaching as often a uh, daily battle against uh, cultural relativism in whatever class. Mm. I uh, my students will infinitely celebrate technological progress, but they they really do not think about the kinds of questions you're raising about what cost is that scientific technological progress? What have we traded away? Um, and at least our national and global birth rates seem to indicate that we have a we have a species wide problem uh, in terms of like we are failing to pass on we are failing to re to create the next generation and. Mm -hmm. 
uh, economically, it's a very it's a very prosperous thing to do to postpone having kids, at least intellectually. And I have tons of friends who have a bunch of kids and somehow no one starves. <laughs> but if you map it all out on paper, it looks like no one should ever be able to afford a child. And yet uh, that too seems to me to be a massive sign of like, we have missed something in terms of our, our society, our civilization, that we, we look at career and we look at social progress and we look at economic progress as total goods rather than potentially potential goods that need to be ranked uh, in their relation to our highest good as as human beings true 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 i think uh to to add to what you just said one other thing that modernism has brought with it is individualism it's all about me, myself, and I, uh, frequently, often, even within a marriage. So first, you have to be both, you know, very successful careers, uh, and, and then you can start thinking about children when you're, you know, in your late 30s, when it will even be, be, be more difficult to have children. But then, you know, medical technology, blah, 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 all the sort of stuff. Um, but it's less, well, what we are losing is cohesion as, 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 as a, as a family, as a group, as a, as a, or even as a species, I suppose. Um, I don't believe we, we are individuals or meant to live as individuals. We're meant to live as, as a society. Mm -hmm. And rich, riches in a society are not necessarily material riches. Mm -hmm. I recall when I was 18 or 19 and the Iron Curtain had come down and we, were, we could go to Eastern Europe for the first time and it was in the late 90s and we would go to Romania and I was I was I mean I'm working class but working class in the Netherlands is infinitely more richer than anything in Romania in those days to give you an idea sure. and we would we would we would be placed at a table and there were two elderly people maybe they were only 60 but it looked like they were 85 and the mm -hmm. table was laden with food and there was me and a friend and they wanted us to eat as much as we could and at some point we realized that they weren't eating and then we realized that probably what was in front of us was a week's food for them. Wow. And that they would not have much to eat for the rest of that week. And we were almost felt, we felt ashamed, you know, to continue eating, mm -hmm. but we, we had to, we would have insulted them if we had left, you know, a lot of the food. So we, we, we ate not as much as we could, but you know, we, we, we tried to wiggle our way through it but realize that but those people you know they were richer than we were because mm -hmm. they had a, they had a sense of happiness the fact that they could share whatever whatever they had i i recall and and, and I, I recall seeing the man's car which was a 1950s car and he opened it and there were all sorts of wooden parts inside that he'd made himself so the car could keep on running you know that that sort of that, and and then coming back to the netherlands I realized how poor my home country was, actually. Uh, and certainly, uh, uh, I've not I've not had that experience. But every time I've been out of out of uh, the United States to travel abroad, I come home just with a greater appreciation for for home. That's that's for sure. Uh, there's there's something to that being able to kind of see the way other people live that that certainly helps with appreciating. Uh, the, the what we have in common and and what's also distinct. Um, let me let let let's jump uh, to a, a different area. Um, perhaps not any happier or or, or more <laughs> popular, but, 
Um, Sarah Nelson, I want to get your thoughts on as a historian of science. Uh, we've been talking about science, about scientism, about uh, this kind of this way of knowing and the importance of science kind of appreciating the model for what it is and not pushing it beyond what it is. Um, there are two areas that I wanted to kind of just get your thoughts on. Uh, the first of those is, is climate change, uh, because uh, just to set this up with a, a quick narrative, um, it seems to me that uh, pretty most of the governments in the Western world are pretty unified in, in presenting a narrative that uh, ecological change or climate change is a looming catastrophe. And there are groups like uh, particularly the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change uh, that produce large reports that have all the prestige of scientific names attached to them that seem to present this, this concurrent view. Uh, I think particularly uh, politicians read such reports and they then draft policy and law proposals based on those. Um, is... The, is, is, the, is climate change an example of, of rigorous scientific study, or is this an example of kind of agenda-driven uh, science pushed beyond its own nature to be used for something else? What are your thoughts? Well, it's a very complicated issue for a start. Let's start with those politicians that you just, just mentioned. Politicians have no interest in science or what's good for humanity. They have interest in what's good for themselves and the furthering of their career. They are as professional as scientists are. Um, there are always exceptions. So they will pick up whatever gives them votes in the new election, the next series of elections. So if, 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 if now the next hot thing is climate change, then they will ride that wave. Many of them will. Um, I'm generalizing, of course, but there is that element. So then we have the scientists themselves. Um, it's very difficult to see what motivates uh, their work when it comes to climate change, because um, so so this is this is how I see it. Climate change is happening. The world is warming up. And there seems to be an involvement of us human beings in there. I, I happily accept all of these things. The question is, how bad is it? And is the 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 the, the doom the 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 the, the, uh, the mongering is it is it well that already that word already is that um, is it a good thing for a start now? I know that in the 60s, 70s and 80s, there have been groups who have been warning about climate change and they were, they were just ignored worldwide, they were being ignored. And it seems that that has led to this idea that we have to be, we have to sort of dramatically increase what we can do to prevent climate change because, so there is, there is, there seems to be some sort of marketing strategy here. Hmm. Um, I recently watched an interview by this 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 Danish uh, sociologist called Bjorn Lomborg, and he is a he's an authority here. He runs a massive lab in Copenhagen, uh, in Denmark, and he also concedes that global warming is a thing, climate change is a thing, and that there is an influence of man in here. But he says climate change policy can be worse than the actual climate change and the causes thereof. And I thought that those were words of wisdom um, because 
there are those who predict that you know the world will uh, we will all burn to death in 30 years or so and and that that's ridiculous scaremongering because even the the worst of models if you like the most extreme of models don't show that but that's how it's being sold this is the greta thunberg line uh, you know um 12 years, which I think we're on your, we have 10 years left, if I remember her her timeline. 10 years left, yes, yes, yes. Um, and then the problem is, of course, so how is this, how is this sense of urgency being promoted? Well, through the use, of course, of science. And then there is the idea, how do you present the findings of, of science? And that depends on what you want to present. Mm -hmm. And and we discussed an article uh, over 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 in our email exchange, where a particular graph was being shown, and if you have a cursory glance at that graph, you think, oh my God, this is bad. Look at that 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 the curve of the average temperature rising massively. This is really getting out of hand. We have to do something. And then you zoom into the final twenty years of that curve, and that was, I think, the past twenty years. And according to that same curve. The average, uh, the average temperature rise uh, over the past twenty years was exactly zero, or something of that kind, or minimal. So the curve flattened, and the way the curve, the way the data was presented was to minimize that, to to to, to not show that really, you know, just look at the at, at at the actual curve. So a lot more data was actually being presented than was relevant. If that curve had only shown the past fifty years, for example then that flattening of the curve would have been immediately obvious. So we have a problem with the neutrality of that particular diagram, to put it firstly, and then with the science behind it. Well, let's, let's, let's assume for a moment that the science is objective. The science is just reporting what data shows us, because this is part, this is, these are measurements. So that's good. That's exactly what science should do. But then the IPCC, that you just mentioned, also makes predictions about the future. And they use historical data to, to then extrapolate from that and see what will happen over the next 50, 60 years, or what's the most likely scenario. And here we have a problem, because those scenarios are exaggerating what is going to happen. Um, Recently, in the Spiegel, which is a, which is an authoritative German magazine, um, one of Germans climate uh, climate doom mongers, um, and I, I keep on forgetting his name, he was forced to admit that the models that were included in the latest report of the IPCC were wrong, that they were too hot. It's literally what it what it says in the English translation. The models were too hot, so they were exaggerating the expected raise of the average temperature, and that's problematic, because then 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 science is 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 because this man is a climate scientist, and he had been promoting those models for the past fifteen years, and now he had to begrudgingly admit that there was something wrong here. So what's going on? You know, I, I, I can't answer this. I can only point out that this is this is not how science should work or what science should do or should be used for. Science should be objective and clearly it isn't. Hmm. Earlier in our conversation, you made the claim that uh, there is nothing neutral about science and it 
it's hearing you kind of just walk us through some of the the data and the usages of that data that seems very clear to me that uh, this is something that is presented as if it's neutral it's presented with the authoritative glance, authoritative kind of sanctioning of this is scientific data and it's not up for debate but like all data it's presented in a certain way and it's mm. presented uh it, it's data itself is 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 meaningless apart from the interpretation of that data so mm. the, the data is presented to cause the reader to draw a certain conclusion which suggests to me that as we are listening to discussions about climate change perhaps reading reports or articles about climate change uh, we need to remember high school lessons about fallacies and uh, about logic and whether or not the premise leads to the conclusion. And really, like, we, we can't be uncritical receivers of, of the science, that there's still not the science. There is scientific data that is possibly being used for various ends, but we can't just assume that that then is the whole story. Is that a, is that a fair that's, conclusion? That's a good conclusion. And that brings me back to the role of science communicators. Because they are the they are the layer in between that that data or those or those graphs, if you like, that are being produced by science labs, and what's being communicated by the politicians that I began with, and by others who are involved in this. And our education systems should be, and I think this is also what you hinder, to learn a particular scientific skill to our students, namely critical thinking. And, and do your own analysis. Now, it's not good to be suspicious of everything that's being presented by the media at all times. But when it comes to these grand stories that are affecting all of us and our own personal lives and our families and everything, then the onus, I believe, is on every one of us to do some fact-checking. And frequently, with all those with those news reports, there is a source, and the source can be found and can be traced back. And those reports are public, and they could be science papers. They can be very difficult to 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 read and to understand. But then we should, you know, make make a bigger effort, I believe, because in this case, I want to I want to say that um, don't blame the scientists. On the science communicators hmm. baddies. I think that's a really good that's a really good caution and, and word there. It, it reminds me of a uh, recent story in the United States. I don't know if you're following uh, uh, you know the name Matt Walsh and the the show The Daily Wire. Okay, he is. I figured that would be pretty big. Um, but uh, I'm just I I am absolutely fascinated to watch what his journalism team kind of uncovered with the uh, Vanderbilt Hospital in Nashville mm -hmm. and their uh, gender transition clinic, and at least mm -hmm. since in the month between we first talked about this and and today, uh, the Vanderbilt Clinic has really shut down what they were doing, and they've said they will not uh, do any more gender transition surgeries on minors until it is settled by Tennessee state law. Which I think I want to try and connect these. I, I think that was a case of journalists doing their job and saying. Here is an interesting story. We're not really sure this should be happening, but everybody needs to know that it is happening and our political leadership needs to then take whatever action they feel is warranted. And as soon as the as soon as the Vanderbilt Hospital's actions were kind of brought to light, 
their donors did not want to be connected with it. And they put pressure on the hospital and the state legislators putting pressure and the hospital really backs down from their full gender affirming care model, which I think may very well be a great picture of what science communicators ought to be doing in the sense of like, if there are scientists who are uh, misrepresenting their data for political or economic ends, uh, that that's a story that needs to be told and needs to be recognized uh, so that, which I assume this would work where that would then equip the scientific community to sort of better police their own in that sense. Like nobody wants to go to a big physics conference and be known as the guy who published the really bad data. <laughs> like that, that, that kind of internal community peer pressure, I assume is just as real within scientific circles as it is in any other industry. Is that, is that right? Oh, well, this is a very difficult one that you're presenting. Um, Matt Walsh should forever be praised and, and various others like him who are not as well known. I mean, he has a million followers on Twitter and I think on YouTube as well, and thank God for that. Um, the modern gender debate or gender ideology debate is, is a very difficult one. It has so many layers, way too many for us to entangle right here. Mm -hmm. um, political ideologies play a massive role. In the particular case of the uh, the Vanderbilt uh, Hospital, I think all that Matt Walsh actually did, uh, and lips of TikTok, another influential uh, Twitter channel, was repost material from their own website, and then they were were almost sued for 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 libel, uh, and of course uh, pre Elon Musk Twitter. Uh, banned uh, lips of TikTok and various other accounts for basically retweeting what was in the public domain. And then thank God that this eventually led to the closing of the particular clinic at Vanderbilt, following, by the way, the uh, a subclinic of the Tavistock in the United Kingdom, which, which happened a couple of months ago. Um, but I kept on wondering what the hell is wrong with my field of history of science and history of medicine and science in general, that this whole thing is allowed in the first place. Mm. That children who aren't old enough to drive a car or buy liquor can, 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 you know, consent to life destroying surgeries because we're not still talking about life changing. What, mental illness is being treated in such a way are we telling people with anorexia that there's nothing wrong with their perception of their bodies and that indeed they are fat and they should eat less but with gender dysphoria which is the underlying condition here we seem to do exactly that based on very shoddy research that shouldn't even be called science by people with very dodgy degrees, if they have degrees at all. And this is a societal problem. And this is also a problem of individualism versus society again, something that I, I, I touched upon. We have been led to believe that our children know exactly what's good for them, that there is no responsibility anymore for us parents to guide them through adolescence to, you know, to become responsible adults. We have to give in to their every whim because if they are happy, we are happy. This is very egotistical. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm generalizing now. 
But it's exactly what's the mindset of many, many, many Western parents. And it's inhuman. And there is an industry very willing mm -hmm. to help with this problem by butchering children. And then there are related fields. I mean, drag queen story hour, you know, that sort of stuff. Because pedophilia is now apparently something that's accepted. You know, I'm, I'm getting quite angry about all of this. And I think that, yes, this is exactly what happens if you remove the spiritual from your world, if everything is material, mm -hmm. then of course you can start chopping off perfectly healthy body parts and encourage others to do the same and so on and so on and so on. And I think this is a massive failure of science because there's nothing remotely scientific about any of this. There is an ideology going through this that's, well, as a Christian, I like to call it demonical. Of course, that's not scientific to call it demonical, but then I am not a science. I'm not a believer in scientism. In the first place, which maybe to uh, kind of wrap all that in together, that then uh, that too is a place that pushes us back to say, okay, so people are. We have a, a very extreme claim that uh, somebody can change his or her gender, and even to the extent of surgery to mimic the the preferred gender, mm -hmm. and this is the claim is based on a, on offered scientific evidence but i mean I, i've looked at some of those studies you're absolutely right i mean there's a variety of there's an awful lot of articles that are based on studies of fewer than 100 students and the even the uh, the most widely raised claim that if a uh, someone with gender dysphoria is not taken if the gender dysphoria is not honored even in terms of name and pronoun that person is likely to commit suicide oh if you God. adjust the studies to uh for how many people who are in that condition already have some kind of pre-existing mental mm -hmm. health condition it's it, it's literally the identical rate so what we're really dealing here with is not gender dysphoria leading to suicide and people not taking it seriously causing suicide we're dealing with people who are mentally disturbed and have gender dysphoria. And that is a, that's a potent cocktail for deciding to take your own life. And that then, so which, but I say all that to say, that's then drawing bad conclusions off of bad research, which yes. puts the onus back on in the individuals as members of a free society who get to vote, who have the, all the equipment of education and reason and free discussion uh, we have the responsibility to then read it carefully, think about it critically, and discuss it honestly, looking for the places where science is being misused and recognizing that for all that science has done, all the goods of internet commerce and connectivity, it also contains all of the bad stuff C.S. Lewis warns about an abolition of man, about we have the literal ability to free ourselves from our own nature and to cut ourselves off from really being human. Like we, we can do that. <laughs> I say, all the good that chemistry has done in pharma, uh, with pharmacology are kind of matched alongside the bad stuff of uh, people cooking meth in their basement and so on. <laughs> Like all of that pushes back. I just want to go back to uh, your point, your closing, your point earlier about uh, that really pushes us back to be very good critical thinkers. And we, we can't just trust the science. We have to evaluate it and weigh that carefully. 
science science is an instrument but we are the wheels thereof and we ultimately have to take responsibility for how we wield that instrument and we have to do so critically each and every time that's what i believe well, Dr. Schilt, thank you so much for uh, joining me here today here on uh, The Optimistic Curmudgeon. Um, where can people find and follow your work online? Where can they follow? Well, there is my blog called Corpus Newtonicum, which has a lot on the Newton that we never knew, the Newton who's interested in the Bible and the prophecies therein in ancient history, uh, but also his scientific works. You can follow me on Twitter, CJ Schilt, so my initials and my surname, and then if you just Google my name, you'll find a lot of scientific articles and and the like. So, yeah. Oh, fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. This has been a delightful conversation. It was. Thank you very much, Josh, for having me on. And thank you, listeners, for joining us for another episode of The Optimistic Curmudgeon. My guest this episode has been Dr. Cornelia Schiltz, lecturer and researcher in the Center for Logic and Philosophy of Science at the Free University in Brussels. He's the author of Isaac Newton and the Study of Chronology. If you like this episode, please leave us a five-star review and share it with your friends. Until next time, seek the good, discover the true, and love the beautiful. You've been listening to another episode of The Optimistic Curmudgeon, where the best ideas win. I'm your host, Josh Herring. The Optimistic Curmudgeon is a project of Thales Press. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a five-star review and share it with your friends. You can find us on three major social media platforms. Search for The Optimistic Curmudgeon on Facebook and LinkedIn, and find us on Twitter at the handle at TheOptimisticC3. This episode was edited and produced by Madison Kay, audio engineer for The Optimistic Curmudgeon. Until next time, seek the good, pursue the true, and love the beautiful.